Hebrews chapter 12. Back at it. And you guys always make fun of me when I say stuff like this and just openly mock me, really, which I'm cool with. I'm glad we have that kind of relationship, but I'll say it anyway. We are really going to pick up the pace now with the rest of Hebrews. Uh, we've been in Hebrews for well over a year and a half, over 70, message, we've, 70 messages we've done in the book of Hebrews, but we're going to pick up the pace. Uh, I promise you because, Lord willing, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, with the help of God, uh, we are looking to start Reality Ventura on June 7th, June 7th. So our goal, prayerfully submitted to the Lord, is that we'd finish the book of Hebrews before that, so right the week before, the end of May, and then roll right into June with Reality Carp and Reality Ventura studying a brand new study together. So I'm going to need your help to get through this book quickly. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace. We're going to cover 11 verses tonight, as a matter of fact, which is gnarly for us. We'll just read the first three right now, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk a little bit. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts rejoice as we come to the word tonight to be reminded once again of the cross that you went to for us, for the joy that was set before you, Lord, that you were willing to go to pay our price. Thank you, Lord. Our hearts rejoice this evening. We're so thankful that as we sang earlier, you are the king of glory. You're the king of our hearts. You're a good king. You're a faithful king. And we ask that tonight, Lord, you'd rule and reign in our lives. And as king, we want to give you sovereignty. We want to give you sovereignty in our lives to do what you want to do, to do what you deem to be best. And so we choose and we endeavor to be humble people tonight, God, to humble ourselves before you and recognize that you are God and we are not. You are great and awesome and we are not. We thank you for the mercy in our lives. We thank you for our lives and we ask that you would continue your work of making us more like Jesus. We say together, Holy Spirit, come. Instruct us now. We ask together, the Holy Spirit, you would help me to communicate in a way that is true to Scripture and glorifies Jesus and builds up the church. So let every word that I say be from your throne and for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at chapter 12, verse 1 here, we have this beautiful imagery that begins to unfold. Notice it says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, I want us to begin to think about this. Who are the cloud of witnesses? Well, the cloud of witnesses are the great men and women of faith referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 that we spent some time studying just recently. And now we have these paintings of them up on our walls. The great cloud of witnesses is men like Moses and Enoch and Abraham and women like Sarah and Rahab and guys like David and Noah and Abel. It's this great cloud of witnesses of men and women of faith who have gone before us. They weren't necessarily great people in and of themselves, but they had the same great God that you and I have. And God accomplished great things in their lives for his glory. And now they become these witnesses. And the picture here is kind of like the ancient Colosseum. 
This ancient Greco-Roman culture was really into the Olympic Games, those athletic games. We all know the Olympic Games. And they were started in a place called Olympia, Greece. And so that's how we get the name. But this Greco-Roman culture, which was the predominant culture at the time, and certainly the culture which is being spoken to in the book of Hebrews here, really esteemed these sort of games. And so I believe the author is drawing us into this imagery of the Colosseum. And these great cloud of witnesses kind of become the crowd filling the seats. And notice that there's a race that's being run. And you and I, Christians, are the people that are running this race. We're on the Colosseum floor, so to speak. We're in the game. We're involved in the activity. But there's this cloud of witnesses gathered around. And they become cheerleaders, so to speak. They're saying, come on, guys, you can finish the race. You can endure. You can run. You can make it. I imagine Moses in the stand saying things like, oh, I remember when we were up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his chariots were at our back and God parted the Red Sea and took us through and drowned Pharaoh and his chariots. You could do it. I imagine Noah talking about the enormity of the task of building the ark. I imagine David saying, I face Goliath by the strength of God and for the glory of God. You can run the race too. And this cloud of witnesses becomes like a coliseum full of people cheering us on to finish the race, to run the race that is set before us. Now, there's some other interesting image that emerges here when you look at it historically and culturally. And that's that these ancient Olympic games, the contestants all competed in the nude. They were all completely nude. And and that's not because they were just into nudity, though they may have been. I I don't know. But, But there's a reason for that. The reason is they wanted to shed anything that would keep them from performing their best. Any sort of hindrance, any clothing that would cling, any sort of drag that would be created, anything that might entangle them, they wanted to shed that. And so the clothing of the day was such that it just wouldn't do. And so they competed in the nude. It's kind of like swimmers in their Speedos. We hate the Speedo, right? We're all agreed on that. Everybody hates the Speedo. Nobody loves the Speedo. The spe- we're disgusted by the Speedo. Does anybody love If you love the Speedo, you're so wrong. <laughs> Nobody loves the Speedo. And yet these swimmers, there they are donning their Speedos. And the reason they're doing this ridiculous thing is the same reason that these Olympians competed in the nude. They, they want to shed any extra weight. They want to get rid of any possible drag, so much so that they even begin to shave the hair off their body that they might shave milliseconds off their time. The picture is competing and wanting to be at our very best and so getting rid of every hindrance. And that's why it says... Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And as we endeavor to run this race, which is the Christian life, there are certain things that could be encumbrances, certain things that could weigh us down and bog us down and create drag and and keep us from being all that God has called us to be. And what we need to do this evening is hear the scriptures beckoning us to lay some stuff down. And so in light of that, we got to take stock of our lives. And we got to start to have some real meaningful conversations with the Lord. I mean, some real brave conversations with the Lord. Like come before the Lord and say, okay, God, let's talk about my life. That's a gnarly thing to say to the Lord. Let's talk about my life. Is there anything that I'm into that's weighing me down, anything that is a weight in my life that's holding me back for what you have for me as opposed to a wing that would carry me forward into your will, anything that's holding me back, an encumbrance that I need to get rid of. It might be a relationship. It might be a relationship you're in. It's just not what God has for you. It might be certain acquaintances or a crowd that you run with and you need to hear tonight 1 Corinthians 15, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
It, it might be some certain material things that you've accumulated for yourself and you insisted on needing them and now that you've got them, you just feel the weight of them and they've just become a burden for you and you are so sure that you really needed it and now that you've got it, you're trapped under the weight of it. It might be some piece of bitterness some place of hurt that you're holding on to. Yep, you were wronged. It was real and it hurts. But it's become an encumbrance in your walk with the Lord. It's become a weight dragging you down and holding you back. You see, the scripture would beckon us to take stock of our lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit tonight and surrender some of those things. And then there's a sin that so easily entangles us. And sin is like that. It's just sticky in its nature, isn't it? It's just entangling in its nature. And some of you tonight are so caught up in sin. You're so tangled up in a sin. It's like a net. And, and you feel like the more you wiggle around, the more you get caught up in it. It's just got you bound up. But you see, the scriptures teach that we can really be free from these things. And the Bible wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. And it's true because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ that we can be free from the sin that so easily entangles us. But we got to call sin what sin is. We've got to be willing to call it like it is and identify with the help of the Holy Spirit those things in our lives that have gotten sticky, that have us entangled, they have us trapped. Notice it says sin easily entangles us. Some of you are just flirting with sin this evening. You're just starting to get into the web of it. Just starting to get caught up in the net of it. And the Holy Spirit would warn you tonight. And say the Christian life is a race. And it's a marathon. You're in it for the long haul. From the moment you get saved to the moment you go into glory. And you need to run the race with endurance laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so just ask the Lord this evening and our time after the message, Lord, is there anything that's hindering me from running well? Christianity is not a spectator sport. So many Christians are happy to sit on the bench, ride the pine, so to speak. It's not a spectator sport. There's a coliseum, there's a cloud of witnesses, and you're on the Colosseum floor, and it's game on. It's time to run hard after the person of Jesus Christ. And notice that there's a course for this race. It says, let us run the race set before us. God has set a course for our lives. I'm not talking about fatalism or determinism. I'm talking about God's sovereign will interacting with our free will and God as a kind father setting a good course for our lives. There's a course that's set before us, a calling that God has on you. So real and so profound is it that Paul was able to say at the end of his life in 1 Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. I finished the course and I've kept to the faith. Notice he says, I finished the course. Those things that God had for me in life, those places that God wanted me to go to, I went to those places. Those things that God called me to do, I did those things. The things that I was to avoid in the places where I was not to go, I didn't go. I finished the course that God as a good king and a good father set for me, I've kept the faith. And that's the calling on our lives tonight. Verse, tells, verse two, excuse me, tells us how to do that. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's how we run the race. We put our eyes on Jesus. There's a coliseum. There's a crowd of witnesses. You're in the game. You're on the Colosseum floor. There is a course and there is a finish line. And guess who's at the finish line? Jesus. And the way that we run the race is by fixing our eyes on him. Now to fix our eyes on him means that there's certain things that we're going to have to take our eyes off of. And you get the imagery. I'm not talking about our physical eyes per se, but the affections of our hearts. There's certain things that we're going to have to just lift our eyes off of to put them on Jesus. There's certain things that have captured our hearts and our imaginations and our attention and our energy. And if we're going to run the race well, we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus, which means getting our eyes off of some other things, maybe some other people, some situations, and putting them on Jesus. And there's Jesus. 
at the finish line, beckoning us, calling us. Anybody ever taught a kid how to walk your kid? Anybody have this memory? Just like two of you? Hello, where are you? Okay, thank you. Teaching your kids how to walk is the coolest thing in the world. Most recently, we taught little Daisy Love how to walk a while ago. And you know, mom would get on one side of the room and she would kind of hold her up. And you know how they are at that stage. They're just like all wobbly and And Kate would hold her up like this and get her all steady. And where would daddy be? Daddy would go on the other side of the room. And there I was at the place that was kind of the finish line. And I'd open up my arms and say, come on, Daisy Love. Come to daddy, you can do it. She had never walked before. This was a terrifying endeavor for a little baby. But there's mama holding her up and just trying to get her steady. And even though that next step was so difficult and it was so uncertain and it had never been done before and her muscles weren't quite ready for it because daddy was across the way saying, come on, sweetheart, you can do it. Come to daddy. She would take that next step as difficult as it was. And then I'd beckon her and she'd take another one. And sure as day, she'd fall down. And what would daddy do? Daddy runs and scoops her up in his arms. and goes, it's okay, sweetie. It's okay, let's try again. And I'd set her down and get her settled and steady and then take a few steps back and come on, sweetie. Come on, baby, you can do it. And she'd take those steps and just fall into my arms and daddy just lifts her up and just, oh, good job. Good job, sweetie, you did it. And in the same way, The Christian lives for the day when we hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And how overjoyed is a father when that little baby girl falls into his arms at the end. And how overjoyed is she. And we're running toward that day. And Jesus is at the finish line and we fix our eyes on him and his arms are open, beckoning us toward him. And how beautiful is that phrase? Enter into the joy of your master. I want to enter into the joy of my master. Anybody ever kind of tried to please somebody in this life? Anybody ever done that? Okay, you know how it is. Try to, I'm married, so I'm trying to do that gig all the time. You know how that is. But, you know, like I'll try to please my wife and so I'll take out the trash or something. Don't got to worry about the trash, sweetheart. I got that. Take it out. Or I'll do like three dishes. Honey, I did the dishes and set them on the side. So she sees them. Just watch the big ones, like the salad bowl and the mixer and stuff. Honey, look, I did the dishes. There they are. And, And why do you do that? You do that for that moment where she goes, oh, sweetie, good job. Thank you. I'm so stoked on you. Now, we all understand how good it feels to have somebody stoked on you, to have somebody pleased with you in that way. I'm living to hear my Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I'm stoked on you. You ran the race. You finished the course. Enter into the joy of your master. And so Jesus is standing there. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who began it. He's the one who completes it. He's the one who justified us. He's the one who glorifies us. And we draw encouragement from him because it says that he went to the cross for the joy set before him and despised the shame, didn't worry about the shame. But he went through this horrific thing, not only physically, but the spiritual reality of our sins being placed upon him. He went through the cross for the joy set before him, the joy of obeying the Father, being united with the Father in relationship, and of bringing us into that relationship. That was the joy set before him. And that goal outweighed the difficulty of the task at hand. The joy set before him. He endured the cross because of the end game, because of the goal, because of how wonderful it was that he be restored to communion with the Father. We would be invited into that relationship. And so we draw strength from that. And sometimes we need an eternal perspective. Sometimes we need to look from the end game, from the end point, and see what God is doing and realize, look, Jesus kept his eye on the goal. 
And it was bigger than the drama. And we keep our eyes on Jesus. And he is bigger than the drama of this world. Amen? And so because of that example of his, we're told in verse 3 to consider him. It means to think about him, to compare ourselves to him. To think about Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. I mean, think of the reality of the cross, what he went through, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Because they were experiencing persecution. The Lord had gone through much more. And so we think about Jesus and the work of the cross. And from that, we draw strength and we don't lose heart. Now, after cuddling us for a few verses here, the author's going to hit us right between the eyes. He's going to hit the original audience right between the eyes. He's cuddled us a little bit. Oh, there's this cloud of witnesses and you're running a race and run with endurance and there's Jesus and look at Jesus and he ran the race and he went to the cross and he kept his eye on the goal and think about him and don't lose heart. You can do it. And he's cuddling us and he's cheering us on and now he's going to smack us in the next verse. Verse four, he says, by the way, You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In other words, he says to them, it's not that bad, guys. I mean, they were being persecuted. None of them have been killed yet. They would. History lets us know that some of them would be killed. But he's saying to them, hey, it's not that bad. I mean, you guys kind of need to get a grip here. And sometimes we need to hear that in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we need to get a real sober look and say, hey, dude, it could be a lot worse. I need to do this with myself all the time. I need people to do this with me as well because I get all caught up in my stuff and my circumstances and oh no, and it's all coming to an end. And you need someone to say, wait a minute, dude. It's really not that much drama. It's not that big of a deal. Buck up. I mean, let's talk about Sudan Let's talk about some real drama going on in the world. You're going to be okay. Sometimes people come to me as a pastor for counseling and they sit in my office and I hear their gig and I hear what's going on and sometimes I feel compelled to say, hey dude, you need to realize it's not that bad. I know that it feels like the end, but it's not. And that's exactly what he's telling them right here. Hey, I don't see a bunch of dead bodies lying around. Okay? So just buck up, soldier and deal with it. And then he hits him again in the next verse. Verse five, he says, and you've forgotten the exhortation which is dressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. He says to them, you've forgotten this biblical passage. You haven't brought to mind these biblical precepts. You guys aren't thinking biblically. You guys are all caught up in, woe is me, it's too hard, it's too much. Number one, it ain't that bad. Number two, can you begin to start, begin to think biblically, please? And if they would begin to think biblically, then they would begin to realize and rejoice in the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and they begin to remember that nothing escapes the lens of his sovereignty. And that this persecution that they're experiencing is not as senseless as it may have seemed. In fact, what he tells them is that they are experiencing the discipline of the Lord. He's quoting to them the Old Testament here and said, you guys have forgotten about the discipline of the Lord. You're not thinking biblically. You're not looking at this rightly. You're regarding it lightly and you're fainting, you're dismayed and you ought not to be because in reality, what you're going through is proof of God's love for you. And that's an amazing statement. And it says in verse six, for those whom the Lord loves he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He tells them, and they may have never thought of this, and they may have never heard this before, that the persecution that they're experiencing is actually the discipline of the Lord in their lives, and that it is proof that the Lord loves them. As strange as that sounds. Now, we need to think about discipline for a moment, and we'll define it in just a second. But a lot of us have weird pictures, weird memories of discipline. For a lot of us, we have parents that disciplined us wrongly. It was too much. 
It went too far. And we've got some real messed up perspectives of discipline. Others of us, we respect our parents. They did it well, and we understood. But you see, in Christianity, discipline takes on a whole new meaning. And we've got to let some of those old images go and be healed of those. Because it takes on a whole new meaning in Christianity, just like death does. I mean, death takes on a whole new meaning in Christianity, does it? Doesn't it? It's not the end anymore. It's not this terrifying thing anymore. It's the beginning. And it's the entry into the presence of God. And it's the enemy that was defeated. And its sting has been removed. There's a whole new perspective on death when you come to Jesus. Well, it's the same with discipline. It's not this negative thing anymore. It's not this hurtful thing anymore. It is a proof, it is the evidence of God's love for you and I, and it is necessary in the Christian life. Let's read a few more verses about discipline, and then we'll talk some more. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now there's a few points that are obvious in this text that emerge immediately. We see the principle and the reason and the result of the chastening or the discipline of the Lord in our lives. The principle is what we saw in verse six. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's the principle at work here. We know this. It's a sick parent that doesn't discipline their children. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's the principle. The reason is in verse 10. He disciplines us for our good. He's not like our earthly fathers and mothers who might have done it in a moment of anger or who might have done it from a place of frustration or who might have done it because their needs weren't being met or, or some other issue. It's none of that. He does it for our good. It's not for his good. He's perfect. And he doesn't need you to be better to make him perfect. He is perfect. So it is purely for our good that he disciplines us. So the principle and the reason and then the result. Second part of verse 10, that we might share in his holiness and afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That we might share in his holiness. Holiness in this context means a separation from sin and a commitment to righteousness. That we might come to that place in our lives where we want to make a greater break with sin and a bigger commitment to righteousness. Is this happening in anybody's life? This is the coolest thing because, you know, before Jesus, I loved sin. Any kind of sin, don't care what kind of sin it was. Give me any sin on any night, I'm down for it. I loved sin. And then you come, to G, you come to Jesus and he does this weird thing where he starts to mess with your life. Can I get a witness? He starts to mess with your life from the inside out. And all of a sudden your affections and your loves and your desires begin to change. And you begin to learn to fear the Lord. And to fear the Lord is to hate evil, the Bible says. And you begin to view evil and sin differently. And then you begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Can I get a witness? All of a sudden, when you used to think it was so lame, now you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And Jesus said, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And so the sharing in his holiness is this break with sin and this commitment to righteousness. And it only comes as the Lord disciplines us. It's a result of him disciplining his children. And then furthermore, when we're trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is the most beautiful phrase. 
the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want it. That sounds so good. Because I know what it's like to live in rebellion. I know what it's like to not be able to get peace. You know, when you're living in rebellion to God, peace is like a greased up little pig. You know what I mean? You're chasing it around and you just can't get a hold of it. And it's the moment you think you got it, it slips out of your hands and you just, it's elusive. And you just, I got it. There it goes. And it's like a greased little pig, pieces, when you're in rebellion to God. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But when you start hungering and thirsting after righteousness and walking in the ways of the Lord, there is this peace that comes from the Prince of Peace that surpasses comprehension, that transcends circumstances. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it comes as a result of God disciplining you and I. And so there we have the principle, the reason, and the result. The Lord loves us, so he disciplines us for our good, and it yields these good things in our lives. But you know what? There's some problems here still. I mean, we're beginning to see that discipline is necessary, that it's good, that God accomplishes the work through it, but there's some real problems here. I mean, because what we're talking about in context is these Hebrew Christians were being persecuted by the Roman government. That was evil. That was wicked. Any way that you define it, any way that you slice it, that was wrong. The Roman persecution against the church was evil. It was wickedness. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying that it's the work of God. The author of Hebrews is saying that it's the discipline of the Lord that they ought not to take lightly. There's a real problem here in my mind. So we begin to ask, which is it? Was it the wickedness of Rome or the work of God? What was going on in their lives? And what are we to make of the things that happen in our lives? I want us to begin to think about it this way. Think about Israel. Israel was invaded by several different countries. Assyria in 722 BC, the Babylonians in 605 BC, and again in 586 BC. Now, now who invaded Israel? Assyria invaded Israel. Why did Assyria invade Israel? Well, they were imperialists. They had political reasons. They had their own imperialistic political reasons as to why they invaded Israel. Same with Babylon. That is why they did it. And it was Assyria that invaded Israel. It was Babylon that invaded Israel. And yet, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that God had been warning Israel that if they didn't get right, if they didn't repent, if they didn't flee from idolatry, that he would discipline them. And he would do so by bringing the Assyrians against them. And later on in their history, he would do so by bringing the Babylonians against them. And they would be removed from their land. They would be scattered. They would be put to hard labor. They would be imprisoned. Later on, he would restore them, but not until he had thoroughly scourged them. So which one was it? Was it the Assyrians? Or was it God? Think of another example that's maybe closer to home. Paul the Apostle. Remember Paul the Apostle had this thing that he spoke about a few times, a thorn in the flesh? We're never told in the New Testament what it was, but we're told that he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know if it was spiritual or physical, but it was something difficult, really difficult for him, hard to endure, so much so that he prayed to the Lord on multiple occasions that the Lord would take it away, and the Lord did not. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul gives us some insight about this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says that it was a messenger from Satan to keep him from exalting himself. Now that is some useful information. He gives us the origin of the thorn. It was a messenger from Satan, but he tells us the end game to keep Paul from exalting himself because he would receive so much, he had received so much revelation. 
Now let's begin to think about that. The origin of it was Satan. The end game was the humility of Paul, that Paul would not exalt himself. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Satan doesn't really have a problem with you exalting yourself. In fact, he's super into it. That's like his gig, right? Lucifer fell from heaven, was cast out of heaven because of his pride. And so he loves to cultivate pride in our hearts and the exalting of self over and against God and others. And yet it was a messenger from Satan, the origin, that Paul would not exalt himself, the end game. So which is it? Was it Satan or was it God? Was it the Assyrians or was it God? Was it Satan or was it God? It was both. Not in the sense of a partnership. Not God saying, hey, Satan, listen. Not that. But in the sense that nothing gets through the sovereignty of God. And nothing gets around the sovereignty of God. And what Assyria and what the devil mean for evil, God can work for good. And what we begin to see emerge from the pages of scripture is that God is so powerful and so in control and so sovereign that even the devil becomes his slave. And that God is able to work the devil's work against the devil. God is able to work the devil's work against the devil. And so the origin may have been the devil, but the end game was decided by the Lord. And so we see that sometimes it's both. And in the case of our context here, the Hebrews, it was the Romans persecuting the Hebrews. But it was God who would decide the end game and who would use it for his purposes. So sometimes it's both. It's not always both. And so the thoughtful Christian now begins to ask, well, how, how can I tell? It'd really help me out if I can tell. When is it the devil? When is it the Lord? When is it both? Or when is it just life? And I'll say this. It's not necessarily easy to figure that out. Because persecution looks like persecution. And an Assyrian invasion looks like an Assyrian invasion. And a thorn in the flesh feels like a thorn in the flesh. So if you just look at them outwardly, it's not really very easy to figure it out. And yet there's a sense that we need to figure this out. It's not easy to figure out, but on the other hand, I'll say, it's really easy to figure out. Here's what I mean. What is the point of the whole book of Hebrews? It is urging the original audience and you and me to stay close to Jesus. That is the point of the book. Stay close to Jesus. It was written to them because they had a proclivity to drift and they were in danger of drifting. And so he writes to them telling them, stay close to the Lord. And what I'm suggesting to you is that if you stay close to Jesus, you will be able to discern between the wiles of the devil, the chastening of the Lord, where it's both of them or where it's just life. And here's how. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, when it's the Lord working in our lives to chasten us, there will be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16 that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to help us discern between right and wrong. And so when God is dealing with a Christian, the Christian who is sensitive to the Lord will experience, will sense this conviction of the Holy Spirit. To convict means to convince. The Holy Spirit will be convincing us, wait, yeah, I think I'm blowing it here. Yeah, I, I think I'm heading in the wrong direction. I, I think I need to get right. I, I mean, mean, the Christian who is walking with the Lord, whose tone and tenor is, I want to obey and please the Lord, as opposed to, I want to get away with whatever I can. The Christian whose tone and tenor is, I want to obey the Lord, just kind of knows when they're busted. Can I get a witness? 
I mean, you just know when you're busted, there's no big discussion or wondering, you're like, yeah, Lord, okay, about that. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to do then is cultivate a heart that is soft to the Lord, ears that are tuned to the Lord, that will sense that, that will hear that, that will know that. The problem with many of us is that we're living in rebellion to the Lord. And we've developed what the scriptures refer to as a seared conscience and a hard heart. And at one time, there was a sensitivity to the Lord. And the Lord was telling you, don't go in that direction. Don't get involved with that person. Don't do that thing. Don't make that purchase. And you did it anyway. And you continued in it. And every time we do that, there comes a searing of the conscience, a sealing off of it from the voice and the work of God, and a hardening of the heart. And the sin that once horrified you almost amuses you now. It's that way with horror movies. The first time you watch a horror movie, you are horrified. If you watch enough of them, you're amused. Sin is that way. First time you want to go in that way or to do that thing, you are horrified with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that overwhelming sense of don't go there. And when we go there anyway, There comes a hardening and a searing. And it becomes more and more difficult to discern the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Then we're in a place of trouble. What we need to do is cultivate a life that listens to God. And a life that hears God well is a life that obeys Christ frequently. And then it's not going to be a big mystery. It's just the Lord. Is this the devil? What is this? Let me illustrate it to you this way. My little daisy love. There, what, do I bring her up a lot? (laughs) What? My little daisy love. There will never be any question in her mind when she's getting a spanking. Is this the devil spanking me? Or is this daddy? There will never be any question why. Because she knows the loving voice of her father. And because she knows the voice of her father, there will never be any ambiguity. She will never think it's the devil when it's her daddy. In the same way, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. They respond. And so when our lives are tuned to the frequency of God's voice, so to speak, there's no question. There's conviction. And we're able to discern between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of Satan. Satan wants you to feel condemned. The Lord wants us to feel convicted that we might get right. And so again, we're asking ourselves, so, so how do I know? I mean, it's Monday. Let's say it's Monday and I get a flat tire. First thing in the morning, I'm driving and I get a flat tire. I ask myself, is this a flat tire because I didn't go to church on Sunday? Or is this a flat tire on Monday because I was going to witness to somebody on Tuesday? Or is this a flat tire just because I've got 90,000 miles on these tires and I should have changed them 40,000 miles ago? It shouldn't be such a huge question because God speaks to his children differently than Satan or the world. Don't get caught up in religion. Our God's not the God who gives you a flat tire because you didn't go to church Sunday. That's not standing in grace. That's not walking in grace. That's not that relationship. The Lord speaks to his children differently. And disciplining is not an expression of displeasure. It's an expression of love. You've got to understand that Jesus took all the displeasure of the Father on the cross. He's the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath and the judgment and the standard of God that God might be satisfied with you and I. 
And so if God is disciplining us, and he will, it is not an expression of displeasure. It is rather an expression of love. And if we're walking with the Lord in any degree of intimacy, when this happens, somehow, someway in the mix, there's going to be the sense of, I feel convicted. I just know I'm busted. This is the Lord speaking to me. It may have had a different source of origin, but the end game is the Lord's. And I know the Lord has stepped into this pain and is speaking to me about my life. And there's going to come this sense that it comes from a place of love. And we'll start to realize the truth of that thing that our parents always said to us before they opened up a can on us. Do you remember your parents saying this? Son, this is going to hurt me more than this hurts you. (laughs) I hated that when my dad said that. It's the worst thing he could ever say. Just beat me. Don't tell me that. That is such a lie. It's not true. I'm not going to be able to sit down for three days. You're going to walk out of here and sit down on the couch. I'm going to be in here crying. You're a liar. You're lying. That's not true. It's going to hurt me way more than it hurts you, Dad. (laughs) But now having my own kids and being a little older... In hindsight, I realize it was true. It really does hurt me more than it hurts my kids. And it's because it comes from a place of love. And I'll tell you something that Kate and I do, and I'm not saying this is what you should do, but it's how the Lord has led us in our household. After we spank our kids, and we do spank our kids, don't report me. Read the Bible. (laughs) Don't email me till you read the book. (laughs) After we spank our kids, and we do spank our kids, we immediately embrace them and hold them. This is just what we do. We'll spank them, and in the moment, as they're beginning to wail and cry, I will immediately grab my boy, and I will hold him and hug him and rock him and speak words of love and kindness and affirmation to him. And I'll tell you what happens every single time is his tears are turned to joy. And there's a sweetness of relationship that comes. And it's the same way when our Heavenly Father chastens us. Somewhere in the midst of it, you are going to sense the embrace of God, the love of God. He will be speaking to your heart words of affirmation and encouragement. That's how he does it. If it's from the Lord, it's going to have a good effect in our lives. Holiness, peaceful fruit of righteousness. But Satan's always looking to destroy Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, both of them, whether it's the Lord or Satan or a combination, may be painful and difficult and involve affliction and suffering. But one, if it's the Lord, is going to bring light and life. If it's the enemy, it's going to bring darkness and death. It helps us to think about the comparison between Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed the Lord. Now, Was that the devil or was that God? How did it end? It ended in death. He went out and he hung himself. The devil inspired Judas. Peter, which one was that? Was that the devil or was that the Lord? Well, what does the Bible say? Jesus speaking to Peter in Luke 21 verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I, that's an important part of the verse. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Notice what's going on here. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you come back to me, you will be stronger and you will strengthen your brothers. Satan came and picked a fight, but Jesus is going to end it. That's what's going on in Peter's life. 
It didn't escape God's sovereignty. It didn't get around God's sovereignty. Satan came to pick a fight, and Jesus determined that he would end it. Satan was the origin. He was the source. But Jesus had the end game. And even though it was a trying and painful experience for Peter, there came that moment on the beach where the Lord restored him. Peter was a new man. He went from impetuous Peter to Peter who after Pentecost preached and 3,000 were saved. I mean, this man was changed, but not before profound failure. He denied Jesus three times. There's going to be failure in our Christian lives. It's not always a bad thing. It's often the discipline, the chastening of God for our goods, for our good. Peter, a tremendous failure. God brought from it tremendous good. Think of Israel. When they went and they conquered Jericho, and after conquering Jericho, they disobeyed the Lord just a little bit, just one of them really. And then they went up after Ai, and in Ai they got their butts kicked. And they came back down off the mountain holding their rear ends and said, God, what happened? Where were you? Now, who was that? Was that the inhabitants of Ai that kicked their butt or was that God? That was both. Israel got a head full of steam and they got wrong and they sinned against God and they ran off and got their butt kicked. But the end, came, the end game was God's. God used it to reveal sin in the camp and to teach them, to instruct them to chasten them. And they learned and they went on to great victories, but not without the great failure. Jonah, who was that? Was that the devil or God or is that just life? You know, it's just life. Sometimes you get eaten by a big fish. Say la vie. <laughs> just one of those things. Mondays. No, that was God. That was God intervening in circumstances because Jonah was in rebellion. That was God's chastening to put him in the belly of that fish for three days. Ananias and Sapphira. There's a doozy. Acts chapter 5, they lie to the Holy Spirit and God kills them. No apologies. God kills them. And in that, God was chastening the early church to such degree that there came a new fear in the church, a new reverence for God, and ministry multiplied. Fellowship increased, and it bore tremendous fruit. But Satan had inspired them to lie. God used it for his chastening of the church, and fruit came from it in the church. The church in Jerusalem being persecuted was that the devil or was that God? I'm pretty sure persecution is from the enemy. I'm pretty sure it's opposition. But what was the early church doing but sitting around in Jerusalem when they're supposed to be going to the uttermost parts of the end of the earth? And it wasn't until persecution breaks out that finally in Acts chapter 8, they go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Satan may have originated that opposition, but the end game belonged to God. You see, God is able to work the works of Satan against Satan. And we need to remember when we're being chased and disciplined by the Lord that there's a difference between being punished and being disciplined. You see, in one sense, God doesn't punish us because Jesus Christ took our punishment on the cross. Amen? Jesus Christ took the death penalty for us on the cross. But in another sense, God does punish us because we do step out of line and we do need spankings from time to time. But it's spankings. It's not a death penalty. Jesus took the death penalty and now the Father gives us spankings. But you see, they're instructive. He calls it discipline. 
meaning it teaches us. It grows us. It's like the word of God in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And in the same way, just like the word of God, God is going to bring some difficulties into our life that are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we can be the people that God has called us to be for our good and for his glory. You guys remember Tom Landry, the coach of the Cowboys? Remember that guy? He had a wonderful definition of coaching. He said this, the job of the coach is to make them do what they do not want to do so that they can become what they've always wanted to be. That's good. The job of the coach is to make them do what they do not want to do. All that tough stuff and that workout and that suffering and those difficulties. Make them do what they do not want to do so that they can be what they've always wanted to be. And in the same way, God will make us go through certain things that we do not want to go through. That he can make us the people that he's called us to be. And my brothers and my sisters, it's going to involve pain. Pain is a mechanism that God has given humanity to teach us. You reach out for a hot pan on the stove and you grab that handle, there is pain that says, let go, idiot. (laughs) God has given humanity pain to instruct us. Pain tells us, stop, let go, step back. God's going to bring some pain into our lives from time to time. And it's going to be instructive. It's going to tell us to stop to let go, to get back, to get right. And so C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And so many can testify that only after some tremendous difficulty did they really get close to Jesus. But I want us to be careful with that because we all know non-Christians who will go through tragedy, all of us. And we're talking about the chastening that God has for his people, for his church, for those who called after his name. And I think we need to be careful with this idea. You know, I've often heard that a non-believer will be going through a difficulty and a well-meaning Christian will say something to him like, well, you know, God is trying to get your attention. I just don't think that's a theologically correct or humane thing to say after some profound tragedy in someone's life because what does that teach them about God? They wind up saying, really? He did that to get my attention? Couldn't he text message me or hit me up on Facebook or something? This to get my attention? I think we ought to rather say to them, hey, what happened to you is a tragedy. You need to know that there's a God who loves you, who's willing to meet you in your place of pain, who's willing to step into your valley of trouble and open up a door of hope. That now that you've experienced this, maybe it's time to give your attention to God. I think we need to be careful how we handle that doctrine. But the pain is never the end. The end is a peaceful fruit of righteousness. But the pain teaches us. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's very simple. There's certain things that we will not learn without pain and difficulty in this lifetime. In fact, Martin Luther said, affliction is the best book in my library. So what do we do with these things? Well, it's tough, man. The Bible's not pulling any punches. We're all in for some tough times. Sometimes it's just the enemy. Sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's the love of the Lord manifest in our lives for our good. So what do we do? Cultivate a heart that listens to God. That's ready to discern. And then 
a heart that yields to God and says, okay, God, teach me. I want to be led in paths of righteousness for thy namesake. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to speak these words into our lives. And Father, these are not easy things, and so we thank you that you're merciful and you're kind and you're gentle with us in so many ways. And we ask that now, Father, you'd send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you'd come and begin to speak into our lives. Give us clarity in the midst of our own tragedies, in the midst of our own difficulties, with the stuff that's going on. Meet us there, Lord. Help us to turn our attention to you. And help us to rejoice in chastening. Give us a whole new perspective on being disciplined. Lord, we really want the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Holy Spirit, come. Work in us now. Prayer team is up here to your left. They'd love to help you. Something going on in your life, come and get some prayer. You can come and get on your face before the Lord and just seek him and worship him. And communion is here to remember what Christ did on the cross. But let's press into Jesus now.